0: to Luke 18. I began this week uh, planning on preaching verses 15 through 27, and then I really started to see the the ways in which this passage is unified, unified really in a close and important way, from 15 all the way through verse 43. So then I decided to preach that whole passage, 15 to 43, and then as it all began to come together, I saw that I bit off more than I could chew in one sermon. Figured you all wanted to eat not only lunch, but perhaps dinner. So um, we'll do this sermon in two parts, 15 through 27, this week. And uh, and the rest through 43 um, next week. Important to see how it's unified and hopefully we can pull those threads together. But let's hear uh, Luke 18 verses 15 through 27 this morning. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us give our attention to its reading. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, "Then Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Babies and young children are cute, adorable, but they are not perfect. They are not sinless. In fact, they are not sinless at all. The most important uh, thinker, the early church, was famous for talking about the doctrine of, of original sin. Augustine spoke about this at length in his book, Confessions. And uh, him and, and many other theologians have noted along with keen parents, have noted the inherent sinfulness and perhaps even the unfettered selfishness of our young children and even our young babies. They demand food from their mother. They are filled with rage and fury when they do not get their way. They have not yet learned the patterns of civil behavior. They have no desire or willingness to share what they have. This means that young children are, are harmless not because they will to do no harm. If you think they, they would not ever do harm, pay close attention to the look they give you when you take something away from them uh, that they want to have. They're harmless because they are weak. They are harmless because they cannot do anything to you or to anyone else when they are angry. They, they are so weak that common sense demands that we do all that we can we reorder our lives in radical ways in order to make sure that we do everything we can to protect them and to provide for them even amidst this is maybe strange to hear in regards to our adorable young children but even amidst their selfishness and self-centeredness and corruption and viciousness. Augustine traces this dynamic from infancy to childhood to adolescence all the way to adulthood. The fallen nature of man. He illustrates it for us in his own adolescence when he recounts a story. A story where he went to a neighboring vineyard in order to steal pears from a pear tree. Not necessarily for any reason except that he wanted to sin. Listen to the words of Augustine. He says this. I stole that of which I had enough of my own and much better. In other words, he had, he had pears on his own. Nor when I had done it did I care even to enjoy the thing which I had stolen. But I joyed in the theft and sin itself. All this we did simply because we would go to where we should not. Behold my heart, O Lord, which you had pity on in the very bottom of the bottomless pit. I had no other provocation to ill but ill itself. It was foul, yet I loved it. I loved to undo myself. I loved my own faults. When we hear this story, we realize that Augustine is doing something quite remarkable in this book. He's he's setting a theological trap for us because all of us here. As we hear those words or as we read those words, we hear, we remember the words of our own hearts and how our own hearts pull us into patterns of sin just because our sinful nature wants to do it and perhaps for no other reason than that. This story works on another level because Augustine is talking about taking forbidden fruit from a forbidden tree. So it resonates with the overarching story of humanity, that we are sinful Uh, Because of Adam's fall in the garden. Why does does Augustine write this way? Why does he recount his own life in this way? Because he sees in his own story the story of every man. Particularly the stories of men and women who are saved by grace alone and transformed by grace alone. His story is a story of restless wandering. Because he sees that all human beings are hardwired to ask the right question... We ask, whom or what should I love? But in our sinfulness, we are doomed to give the wrong answer. We look at this world, we know that something must satisfy us. The only answer that we can give ultimately is ourselves because we elevate ourselves above God. We break his law in order to find that that which will satisfy us and we show our inability. So Augustine is narrating the story of grace And when we think about grace alone, the most important things we need to understand about it is that it is something that acts upon us from the outside. It comes as something external to us. And if we are to understand grace alone, uh, we need to see that grace is what overcomes our ability to answer that question correctly of whom or what should I love. Uh, Augustine actually penned that prayer that we use often in our worship services. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is Augustine narrating the story of grace. And the story of grace and grace alone is shown to us in this passage before us. So here's our life transforming reality. In order to understand salvation by grace alone, we must see our coming to Jesus with empty hands and we must see the all-sufficient work of the Savior. We come to God with empty hands, and the work of Christ is all-sufficient to save us. And since those two things are true, that we come to God with empty hands, and because Christ's work is all-sufficient, we must see everything we have is at the disposal of Christ, we must distrust ourselves, and we must grow to love the Savior more and more. Because the grace, because we are saved by grace alone, everything we have is at the disposal of Christ, we must distrust ourselves, and we must love Jesus more and more. Three ideas that we'll use uh, to look at this passage together. First is how to enter the kingdom. Second is how not to enter the kingdom. Thirdly, the one in whom or by whom we enter the kingdom. First then, how to enter the kingdom. The kingdom. We remember that last week we looked at the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, these two men that were bringing prayers to God, the Pharisee is trusting in his own work. Uh, he's saying, I thank you God that you've made me this way because I'm not like the tax collector, I'm not like other people. He thinks that what he brings before God is, is his own righteousness. The tax collector, as we, we thought about today, he doesn't just admit his sin, he confesses his sin he doesn't, have, he doesn't become a defense attorney for his mistakes. He says, uh, God, I am unworthy to stand in your presence. Jesus says, this is the one who goes home justified. This is the one who goes home redeemed. And those, uh, that's what we learn about the grace of God. And then that's unpacked for us with the rest of chapter 18. Chapter 18 is really commentary on being saved by grace alone. The first part of this passage are these little children being brought to Jesus. Two things I'd like us to consider. The first is the lesson in Jesus' action. What Jesus actually does and what that teaches us. The second is the lesson in Luke's context. Why he puts this account exactly where he does. So first then, the lesson in Jesus' action. This is an important passage for us especially as reformed folk who disagree with our our baptist brothers and sisters about the place of children in the covenant community of god we see jesus welcoming and and receiving children as they are brought to him we see that the the disciples are getting upset about this and and they're saying uh, no no this is not what jesus should be doing so they're rebuking the people that are bringing these young children to our lord Uh, The reason for this, there's a cultural reason, is that important people would not have spent their time in public with little children. Little children had, socially speaking, lesser value. Uh, Even in the the Greco-Roman world, that was true of women as well. Men were the ones who had high status. Men were the ones who had position. So Jesus, as this somewhat rising star, celebrity, some people think he may be the Messiah, the disciples are saying, Jesus is too important for this don't bring your little children to him even though back then children were cute and adorable as well they're saying don't waste Jesus time but notice what Jesus does he calls out to them directly he calls the children to himself and shows us how much uh, he values them and so what we have confirmed here for us, even though this passage does not talk, uh, touch directly on the question of baptism in that there is no baptism in this passage. We learn, everyone learns, that young children are precious to God. They are precious to our Lord. And then as Reformed folks, what we learn is that through the family, our children are to be part of the people of God. As God has promised from the beginning, I will be a God to you and to your children. I found J.C. Ryle's words quite helpful on this. And so I'll quote him at length and listen to his words as he opens this up for us. He says, The souls of young children are evidently precious in God's sight. That's what we learn from Jesus. Both here and elsewhere there is plain proof that Christ cares for them, no less than for grown-up people. The souls of young children are capable of receiving grace. They are born in sin and without grace cannot be saved. There is nothing either in the Bible or experience to make us think that they cannot receive the Holy Spirit and be justified even from their earliest infancy. The baptism of young children seems agreeable to the general tenor of scripture and the mind of Christ in the passage before us. If Jewish children were not too young to be circumcised in the Old Testament, it is exceedingly hard to understand why Christian children should be too young to be baptized under the gospel. Thousands of children, he says, no doubt, receive no benefit from baptism. But the duty of baptizing them remains the same. The minds of young children are not unequal to receiving religious impressions the readiness with which their minds receive the doctrines of the gospel and their consciences respond to them is well known to all who have anything to do with teaching. Last but not least, the souls of children are capable of salvation, however young they may die. To suppose that Christ will admit them into his glorified church, that is heaven, and yet maintain that he would not have them in his professing church on earth is an inconsistency which can never be explained. That's the lesson we learned from Jesus' action: that children, the souls of children, are precious to God; that He values them; that they are capable of receiving the grace of salvation; and that we have them in their and their presence among us as the people of God. Secondly, the lesson in Luke's context: why did Luke put this here, particularly right here in? this part of his gospel. Notice, it's not just children that are being brought to Jesus. The Greek word here is brephos. It is infants. It's little, little babies. Newborn infants that are being brought to Jesus. We've already said today, a baby is not free from sin, but actually given to selfishness and self-centeredness. Thus, it's not baby virtues, a set of baby virtues that Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Right? It's not because of their Chubby cheeks or anything else. There's something else uh, other than virtue that uh, has Jesus say this to us. It's, and that is this it's that children, especially babies, newborn infants, they can do nothing of their own accord or of their own effort. Notice even in, in verse 15, these young children, these babies, are being brought to Jesus, right? They, they can't get there on their own. They need to be brought to the Lord. And this is the picture of grace that, it, that is true of everyone who enters the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is to receive salvation. Kingdom of God, the realm of God's new creation and salvation. This is the picture of grace. We must be brought to the Lord. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O oh, Savior, true, but I was found, was found of thee, Lord, tis not that I did choose you, that I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. You remove the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me, that I live for you alone. The lesson in the context of Luke is, is that entering the kingdom of God is not something that's attained by human effort or attained by standing via our accomplishments. That brings us to the fact that it is purely of God's grace. Entering the kingdom of God is something that happens purely of God's grace, external to us. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's something we didn't deserve. It's the demerited favor of God. It's actually the very opposite of what we deserved. We deserve punishment and we get blessing. That's because God is a God of grace. One theologian says that grace is an application of God's character towards human rebellion. It's who he is. He is a God who is abounding in grace and mercy and steadfast love. He's slow to anger. And salvation is purely of God's grace. Our sinfulness is, it shows us that we are completely unable uh, to come to God with hands that are full. The, the Apostle Paul actually uses the imagery of death. To describe our sinfulness and our sinful nature. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. This highlights another thing about the the, the babies being brought to Jesus in this passage. The helplessness, the weakness of little children... ...is meant to illustrate how incapable we are of bringing something to God... ...that is worthy of his acceptance. It's like telling a, a weak old infant... ...setting him or her down on the floor... And saying, if you want your lunch, walk to the other side of the room. It's absurd. It's absurd. Completely incapable of doing that. And that illustrates to us in our own life. How our own hearts, our own sinful heart is unable to produce righteousness. And actually how our own sinful heart leads us down destructive paths into sin. Augustine once again illustrates this for us in his book Confessions. He talks about one of his friends, Olypius. Olypius was a man who was very sensitive to the grotesque violence in in the gladiator games in that world. He was very careful to stay away from it, never wanted to take part in it. He had a lot of friends who would pressure him, said, just come with us one time, come with us one time to see the gladiator games. And uh, he gives in once, he he goes with his friends and and he is there trying to uh, keep his eyes closed but then in, in one moment, his willpower is overcome. He opens his eyes and he takes in this scene of really grotesque and pornographic violence. Augustine describes how in these few moments, his friend becomes a different man. He drank deeply of this scene with sort of a, a bloodthirsty joy. He became a person that so craved this spectacle, that he, he no longer waited for his friends to ask him to go, but he went on his own. He started finding others uh, to bring with him. And uh, so Augustine speaks with quite an insight. Into, this is before modern neurology knew that when we, we take in scenes of extreme violence or extreme sexual pornography, that the, the neural pathways of our brain are actually reconstructed so that we begin to crave those things. And somebody may look at that today and they will say, well, that, that, that's one of the, the, the ways in which science disproves God. But that's not it at all. It shows us that the fall of sin, our sinfulness, is not only spiritual, but it's physical and it's physiological. We have this sinful nature. It renders us hopeless. It, it brings us down paths of destruction. It renders us incapable of bringing anything before God. But grace overcomes that. Grace is external to us. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 brings us then to verse 4. Ephesians 2 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. M dash, by grace you have been saved. Paul says, That's grace. That's grace. You were dead. In your transgressions and sins, grace acts upon you externally, makes you alive, brings you to spiritual life, makes you alive. That's regeneration through the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace that God works through that message to bring your heart to life and to spiritual life. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are brought by the grace of God, like little children with empty hands, naked holding nothing of our own merit or achievement. And it's all, as Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is why if you understand grace, you understand why it disallows human boasting. If you understand grace alone, you understand that there's there's no way that anyone could ever boast of anything, of their own achievement before God. How to enter the kingdom, we must enter like a little child. How to not enter kingdom. The kingdom. We see that in this interaction, the second interaction with uh, Jesus in this passage. With this rich ruler, this rich ruler. We see his mentality that's r- really off track from the beginning. He says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Well, what we've just learned, how does one enter the kingdom? How does one inherit eternal life? It's by, it's by the grace of God alone. We come as a little child with empty hands being brought to Jesus. And he says, what must I do? Well, what does a a young child do? What does a young baby do? Nothing. There's nothing that they can do in order to enter the kingdom. None of us have the goodness God requires. And that seems to be exactly why Jesus says what he does. Uh, The man says, good teacher, what must I do? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Sort of a precursor to this whole interaction. As if this man is coming to Jesus saying, I'm going to call him good teacher, he's going to look at me, see that I'm good, declare me good, and tell me that I'm the kind of person that would enter the kingdom. Tell me that I'm the kind of person who would inherit eternal life. But note this conversation as it unfolds. What must I do, he says. Jesus says, what are the commandments? You must keep them. And this rich ruler says that he has done that. I've kept the commandments. And in fact, I have kept all of them since I was a boy. There are people who overestimate their own obedience and who underestimate their own obedience. This, is, this guy is the former. Right? He's overestimating, overestimating his own obedience. Jesus does not get lured into that. He probably could have a long conversation about how he has actually broken the law in many places... At many times in his life. But instead Jesus goes deeper. He wants to go deeper to the very heart of the matter. Which is the heart of this rich man. He goes to his heart. He says take all that you have. Sell it and give it to the poor. Jesus knows the idolatry of this man's heart. He knows what he treasures in his heart. This man loves his Wealth. Not only does he love his wealth, he loves the fact that he is a wealthy man who still can say, I keep all the commandments of God. I've done all of these things. As a rich man, as someone with status, I have still been careful to keep the law of God. So ultimately, we're learning what? He wants to enter the kingdom not as a baby, empty hands being brought to Jesus. He wants to enter the kingdom as a rich man. With all that he has. That is precisely why he becomes sad when Jesus places this demand upon him. He wants to enter the kingdom as the rich man who has merited righteousness. So if he needs to give all of his riches away, that means he enters the kingdom as a poor man. He doesn't want to do that. That leads us to remember not only how this passage has has begun unless you become like a little child, like a little baby, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It also shows us the enduring application of this passage for our own lives because if we understand that entrance into the kingdom is truly by God's grace and by God's grace alone, then anything that Jesus then gives to us any gifts that we have, any talents, any resources, at all is at the disposal of Christ. It, it transforms our mind to be able to see why we are to be freely such a giving people. My seminary professor uh, put it this way. Seminary professor David Van Drunen, whose ancestors, by the way, he and I have found out his ancestors helped establish our church. Pretty cool. This is what David Van Drunen says about this. If we enter the kingdom as a little child, then surely everything we have is at the disposal of the Lord Jesus. If we come as little children, we come with empty hands. We come with nothing. And if that's the case, anything that Jesus may give us, any talents, skills, time, or energy any material resources, anything we have must surely be at the disposal of Christ. Not for us to keep for ourselves, to use as we will. But all that we have belongs to the Lord and needs to be put into his service. You see how grace alone produces this mindset in us that God, by his grace, gives us that which will, will bring us rest, right? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And God says in Christ, I, I give you that which for which your heart so longs, for which your soul so longs. And anything that, that I give to you, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord your God, anything that I give to you, that is to be at my disposal, it's to be given back. It's why we can say the heart that is transformed by grace can sing take my life and let it be consecrated lord to to thee take my moments and my days my hands and my feet my voice and my lips my silver and my gold my intellect and my power my will my heart my love myself and i will be ever only all for thee this rich man thinks about it in reverse that's what makes jesus say how difficult it will It will be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Right, Speaking with hyperbole. Uh, to show that if you're trusting in your riches. If you're trusting in what you have merited. You're never going to enter the kingdom. And so the disciples of Jesus say. Well who can be saved? People who are rich. People who have accomplished much. These are the ones you would put in front of everyone. If there's an important visitor to your village. Right? You say. Here's our rich people. Here here are the ones who have accomplished so much. Look at at all that they have done. They're saying, if the the rich and accomplished people, the people with status, aren't the ones who get into the kingdom, then who will? With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That brings us then, as we close, to our final idea, the one in whom we enter the kingdom. Look back at verse 22. Just for a minute. There's something there uh, that, that we must see. Jesus tells this man, sell all that you have. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Uh, this man is, is saddened by this first commandment of Jesus. He gets hung up on the, the sell all you have. But the, the real zinger is what comes just after that. He says, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. People get worried about this passage, especially as Protestants, because when this man comes to Jesus says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus really answers with the law. A command, this is something you must do. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. But what is Luke doing in the context. What is the gospel of Luke showing to us at this point? See Jesus knew the heart of this man. He knew the idolatry in his heart. And so by bringing him to something that he must do. What Jesus is doing is magnifying his own work. Because what has the gospel of Luke been telling us? It's been telling us that only Jesus will walk all the way to Jerusalem. And go to the cross and finish the work that his father has, done, has set for him to do. If we think about the Christian life in terms of what should I do before we think about what has Jesus done, we will be crushed under the power of the law, under the crushing weight of the law. What Jesus is doing is reminding this rich ruler, he's reminding the people around him that he was the one who was rich, who became poor, who gave up the glory and the communion with his father and the spirit that he had enjoyed From all eternity. What he's doing is he's magnifying his own work. He who was rich became poor so that through his poverty we who are poor might become rich. Behold the riches of God's grace as enacted through the poverty of God the Son. He humbled himself. So as Jesus is unfolding all of these things about grace alone. And the rest of this chapter all about the the importance of grace alone. And understanding grace alone. At the very middle of that chapter... He takes a pause. He says, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. Everything written about him will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. The third day he will rise again. The disciples cannot understand this. What does that mean? They can't understand what Jesus is saying. Because they have not yet learned that the Son of Man came not to be served. See, if if there's anyone who should be served, it's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the one in the book of Daniel who rules the nations. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to understand grace alone, if you want to understand grace alone, you need to understand both of these pictures. First is this, we come into the kingdom as as a baby, with empty hands, naked, holding nothing, in and of ourselves and of our merit. And then secondly, we need to see the all-sufficient work of Christ by which we stand. Grace is never cheap. It happens because of what has happened in Christ. It's, grace is not God's capitulation to sin. It's, got, it's not God's ignoring sin. It's not cheap sentimentalism. Grace is God's love for us in Christ that is greater than all of our sin. So come to the Savior with empty hands. Understand that that is how we come to him. That is how we are saved, by grace alone. He who worketh not, but believeth in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When you understand that your life in the kingdom of God, your life in salvation is purely by grace alone, think about how that transforms your mindset to be able to look at everything you have that you can use freely and give freely because it's at the disposal of your Lord and your King. God, by his grace, wraps us up in his arms like a mother to a newborn infant. We are brought to him. Nothing of ourselves. Like a newborn baby in God's covenant people that are brought to the fountain of, fountain of grace in baptism. Life in the kingdom is about entering with empty hands. Life in the kingdom is about entering by God's grace alone. And thus we are able to give it all back to him. And we are to love him more and more as we see the truth of his grace in our own lives. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you we pray that your word as it has been opened up this morning that that it will go into our hearts that you will work uh, through your uh, imperfect servant father forgive us of our sins and those things which displease you father uh, may we be uh, a, a redeemed people uh, who love you and who serve you and uh, may we understand even just a little bit more, may we understand grace alone and being saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you for the gospel, for your word and for your church. It is in Christ's name. Amen.